Welcome to the Western Health Podcast, If Only Someone Had Asked, Family Violence, a Health Service Response. I'm Lucy Vandenberg, a Western Health staff member and presenter of this podcast. This series comes with a content warning. We'll be covering topics that may be distressing for people with first-hand experience of family violence or who have seen a loved one live through it. Help is available. Contact Respect on 1800 737 732 or you can see the supports listed in the show notes. We'd like to acknowledge that we have recorded this podcast on what is and always has been Aboriginal land. I'd like to start by sharing some shocking statistics with you. In Australia, on average, one woman a week is murdered by her current or former partner. And intimate partner violence is the greatest health risk factor for women aged 25 to 44. And in addition, one in four women have experienced violence by an intimate partner since the age of 15. You might have also heard about the horrific murders of Hannah Clark and her three children. They were killed by her estranged husband in 2020. And few people will forget the violent death of Rosie Batty's son, Luke, who was murdered by his father in 2014. Here's Rosie talking to the media following her son's death. Family violence happens to everybody, no matter how nice your house is, how intelligent you are. It happens to anyone and everyone. And this has been an 11-year battle. After Luke's tragic death, the Victorian government set up the Royal Commission into Family Violence. It completed its work in 2015 and it made 227 recommendations to reduce the impact of family violence. At the time of recording this podcast, all but 23 had been implemented. You may be wondering why Western Health is making a podcast about family violence. Well, It's a major health issue, and the Royal Commission found that health services like ours play a really important role in responding to family violence. Healthcare professionals can be vital in intervening and offering support to victims. And we know that people place considerable trust in advice from health professionals, and this advice can help victims come to recognise family violence, make safety plans and gain access to the services they need. This podcast, If Only Someone Had Asked, explores the issue of family violence, what it is and why it occurs, how to identify it when we see it, and how we as a health sector can respond, perhaps being that first important step for a woman, child or other who is in danger. We'll hear from women with lived experience of family violence, as well as community and health professionals who are working to strengthen our response to family violence. Later in this episode, you'll meet Beth, It's not her real name. We've used a pseudonym to protect her and her children. She shares with us her experience of living with a controlling, abusive and violent partner. I felt a bit like a ball in a pinball machine sometimes, just going from side to side, not really knowing what to expect or what he was going to say or what the next ultimatum was going to be. At first, Beth's partner seemed perfect. He was loving, kind and clever. Then he turned controlling. If I cut the bread too thickly, he'd go into a rage. And he made sure she knew what would happen if she left him. He would cut out stories in the newspaper of women whose ex-husbands had killed them for leaving them and show them to me at the breakfast table. And then there were the violent outbursts, one that was so severe that Beth had to have reconstructive surgery and it has left her with lifelong health complications. 
The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare found that over an eight-year period to 2019, more than 29,000 people were hospitalised due to family violence. Two-thirds were women, and partners were recorded as being the perpetrators for 62% of cases. During the COVID-19 lockdowns, a shadow pandemic of family violence emerged. Many victim survivors were literally locked down with their abusers. And we know from family violence agencies there was an increase in the number of clients and there was also a significant growth in controlling and coercive behaviour. Perpetrators were literally weaponising COVID to further isolate women and children. This was no more evident than right here at Western Health. A study of presentations to Footscray Hospital Emergency Department found there was a five-fold increase of domestic violence-related facial fractures during the various stages of Melbourne's 2020 COVID lockdowns. Females accounted for 100% of these presentations. According to the Royal Commission, family violence disproportionately affects women and children. The majority of perpetrators are men. For female victims, their abuser is most likely to be a current or former partner, while men are more likely to experience violence in different family relationships, for example as a son or a sibling. We know that the impacts of family violence are staggering. As well as the risk of physical injury and death, victim survivors can experience long-lasting impacts on their mental health, sexual and reproductive health and their finances. To hear more about this, I'd like to introduce you to Asunta Moroni. She's an experienced community development worker, and she's also the project lead for Western Health's Strengthening Hospital Responses to Family Violence. Asunta works with clinical staff to help them build their capacity so that they can more effectively respond to patients experiencing family violence. Here she expands on some of the ways family violence can impact victim survivors. The biggest impact could be somebody losing their life, but also it creates a situation where the affected family member or the victim survivor can live in fear for the rest of their lives. And, you know, they can be constantly worried, constantly living under stress, thinking that the person using violence might find them, track them down. And sometimes women have told us that even when they leave the situation or you know, that that's relationship, that the violence continues, it doesn't end there. And we saw things in the headlines with Hannah Clark and Rosie Batty, where even after they had left that relationship, the violence continued to the point where the person using violence, you know, murdered and killed the children and other people as well. According to Asunta, the impacts on infants, children and young people can be just as damaging whether they are directly targeted with abuse or whether they witness abuse towards a parent or carer. Family violence impacts every aspect of their lives, including their physical and mental well-being, their development and schooling, and it is the leading cause of children's homelessness in Australia. What we know is that when children live in an environment where there's violence, it can impact them in all sorts of ways and it can even impact children in utero. So children can experience the effects of family violence. They don't have to be the direct recipient of the violence. If they hear, see the violence, it can cause trauma that can affect their developmental process through life, school. And we know that what we call, there's a study called the Adverse Childhood Experience Study. And what we know is that if you have an adverse experience as a child. It can affect you later in life and can cause comorbidities or antisocial behaviour and poor decision-making. So it can affect anyone in the family, 
children, even pets, throughout the lifespan as well. As well as the personal harm family violence causes, it also has a huge economic cost at a societal level. The combined health, administration and social welfare costs of family violence has been estimated to be $21 billion a year. Family violence isn't always about inflicting physical harm. It's underpinned by a pattern of coercion, domination and control by one person over another, and that might involve emotional, psychological or financial abuse. Tactics can include isolating a partner from family and friends, monitoring their movements, controlling access to money and psychological and emotional manipulation. This kind of behaviour is called coercive control and it is nearly always at the core of family violence. Tactics like these are designed to erode a victim's self-confidence and to make them unduly dependent on the abuser. After the tragic deaths of Hannah Clark and her children, calls for coercive control laws gained momentum. It emerged during this case that her estranged husband had subjected his family to years of coercive control before murdering them. Fortunately, there is some change in this space. In 2022, Australia's Attorney-General's agreed that they would create a national plan to address coercive control. It's hoped that this will help reduce family violence. Here's a saunter again on some of the drivers of family violence and why abusers choose to behave coercively or violently. Family violence is about power and control. And what we know is that there are certain conditions in society that sort of heightened or allow family violence to continue and so we know that gender inequality is the root cause of family violence so when we have a society where one part of the society is more powerful than another or has more access to resources or decision making then we sort of have an environment where violence against women is more likely so it is a form of gender-based violence and there are a number of drivers of family violence and the change of story framework which is the national framework for the prevention of violence against women talks about four drivers of family violence and one is condoning violence against women so you know thinking that it's acceptable the other one is men's control over decision making so when one part of the community has more power than another also adherence to rigid stereotypes where we have those rigid stereotypes and roles about how men and women should behave and it's really important to remember that those stereotypes don't only hurt women but they also hurt men so Often we talk about a patriarchal society. So those sort of views about how men should behave also put pressure on men to behave a certain way and also can cause a situation where, you know, men feel like they have to be in control or they have to be the man of the house or they have to make the decisions. And then those things around male-peer relationships and culture where we have situations where groups of men often in a situation where they encourage each other or that sort of disrespect towards women culture. So those are sort of the conditions that can make family violence more acceptable in society. And then, of course, there's underlying factors. You know, unemployment, it's not a cause, but it can exacerbate the violence, alcohol and drugs, all those other things as well. Earlier in this episode, you heard the voice of Beth, a social worker who has a long career in the family violence sector. She's also a victim survivor. She shares with us the dawning realisation that her husband's controlling behaviour and his infrequent but violent eruptions were family violence. Even though there were instances of physical violence, 
And when he was physically abusive, it was very scary and quite, it was very violent. You know, it was, he, he reminded me of, you know, the old sort of cartoons with the Tasmanian devils in Roadrunner or whatever that just run round and round and go nuts. That's what it was like when he would go crazy. But um, at the time, that, that probably only happened about once every six months. It was the, the controlling and the sort of the emotionally powerful behaviour in between those episodes that I suppose I didn't recognise as family violence because I just thought, oh, you know, he has some mental health problems and he had mental health problems before I met him and, you know, he tries and at different times he would be very loving. It was very, very confusing. It was only when I confided in a colleague and she turned around and she said to me, I remember her exact words were, well, you're in a family violence situation. And I just thought, oh my God, she's right, but I can't be, you know, because I'm a worker in family violence. I can't be in a family violence situation, but that's exactly what it was. You might be wondering how Beth, an intelligent woman with vast experience working in family violence, found herself in this relationship and why she stayed. Well, experts tell us that it's uncommon for perpetrators to be abusive in a relationship straight away. In fact, some actively love bomb their partner. This means they lavish them with excessive attention and flattery, and it's an attempt to become their partner's whole world, and what they're doing is slowly isolating them from their support network. Perpetrators often gain power over their partner in small, subtle ways, and these are often red flags that a relationship has become unhealthy and could escalate into family violence. Very early on, he wanted us to start making our own bread, which meant I made our bread. But if I cut the bread too thickly, he'd go into a rage. If you were too scared to use the butter in certain ways because he liked it to look a certain way in the butter container. When the babies came along, it was um, if they were too loud or if they weren't too loud or if they'd eaten dinner or if they hadn't eaten dinner or if the dog barked or anything at all. So there was a lot of that kind of control. I, I felt a bit like a ball in a pinball machine sometimes, just going from side to side, not really knowing what to expect or what he was going to say or what the next the next ultimatum was going to be or the next rule was going to be. You know, it just, it sapped your energy totally. Asunta says this type of behaviour is straight from the coercive control playbook. Victim survivors walk on eggshells. They're fearful of what their abuser may do next. Beth remembers the first time her ex-husband's controlling behaviour erupted into physical violence. He lost it with me in the kitchen one day and started punching me in the back and then threatened to stab me with a knife on the kitchen bench if I didn't shut up. I, for, I can't even remember what the... what the, um, what the the It wasn't even an argument. I think I just said something that set him off. And I remember I was in shock for about a week because I, I just I simply couldn't believe that he would be that way or he would treat me that way. Asunta explains how a perpetrator's controlling behaviour can escalate, often until a woman loses all agency over her life. Victim survivors can feel trapped and they can feel unable to leave the relationship. Often the person using violence, the perpetrator, they don't start off using the violence or they don't start off coercively controlling somebody because, of course, if you went on a first date and that happened, you probably wouldn't go on a second date. But what happens is that the person using violence will slowly and systematically 
take away that person's power and control and it's very gradual and sometimes you don't even notice that you are being gaslighted so gaslighting is when someone changes a perspective of reality or that you're being controlled and it might it might start off with things like they might say to you oh you don't need to wear makeup because you're so beautiful with, without it why do you have to dress that way you should only dress that way for me what happens is by the time the woman is in it or the person, um, the victim or survivor is in a situation where they want to leave, they sort of can't because they may have kids and they're trying to keep their kids safe. Often they may have been caring for other family members or pets or they don't have any money now because he's, he's said to them, oh, you know, like I'll pay all the bills. And so they're in a situation where they have nowhere to go, they've got no resources, they're scared because often the person using violence will say to them, if you leave me, I don't know what I'll do without you, I'm going to, they may threaten suicide or they may threaten to harm them or somebody else. And so what we know is that when a woman chooses to leave, she's at most risk of being killed. So separation is a lethality marker. So if someone is separated and they're experiencing family domestic violence, they're at most risk of being killed. And we saw that with uh, Hannah Clark. We saw that with Rosie Batty. Even though she left, the violence didn't stop. And so that's why often most women, it's not that they don't want to leave. It's just that for them, staying there is a protective factor. That's how they're trying to keep themselves safe and how they're trying to keep maybe their kids safe as well. We're going to hear from victim survivor Beth again. She's going to describe some of the factors that locked her into a family violence situation until her children were adults. I remember um, when the baby was born, when we were home the first week, and I remember him getting angry with me about something and snatching the baby and walking around the outside of the house with this baby. And I remembered thinking then, right, I can never leave him alone with that child. Beth decided that she couldn't risk leaving him while the children were young. She was worried about what that would mean for her and for her children. I could not take the chance of some judge or clever barrister, and he was very clever with the police if they were ever called or with anyone really, anyone in authority, and I knew if he and I separated, he would probably get half custody of the children or half residence, residential access with the children, and then I wouldn't be there. I wouldn't be there to look after them. Beth's ex-husband made threats about what would happen if she left. And she knew that some perpetrators would stop at nothing to maintain their power and control. He would cut out stories in the newspaper of women whose ex-husbands had killed them for leaving them and, and, and show them to me at the breakfast table. You know, like he had no respect whatsoever for the law or for any intervention orders or anything like that. Trying to find housing with five children. And, you know, we lived out in the country. I had a lot of animals I had a menagerie actually almost and um there was just you know he would take that out on the animals there was just no way that we could go anywhere you know I worked in the field I knew at the time and and you still see it you still see it today that women that come forward get treated like they've got a mental illness and they get um you know pathologized and medicalized you know they get given given medication and all that I didn't want that I didn't want anyone saying well if you don't leave him we're going to call child protection because I knew the biggest risk for me was separation and the biggest risk for my children was separation. And I also know from, you know, a lot of working with uh, with other women that women who live in situations like that know that. You know, working in the field, I knew a lot of the statistics too. And I knew that the majority of women that are killed are killed after they separate because that's the reality of it. So 
I didn't want it to come to anybody's attention because I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to have to make a choice. I knew that if I didn't have my little ducks in a row and if it didn't end the way he wanted it to end, I knew it would be, it would, it would end very badly. I think of the times when I was thinking about leaving and I think of some of the threats from him if I was to leave and take the children. And then every time you hear of a woman who's killed or a woman who's killed and her children are killed, you know, like I just, I just, I'm not saying women should stay with violent men at all or, or abusive men or men who are, you know, into power and control, but I just thank God that I'm still alive because um, I just think that every time I hear it, I think that could have been us. There are so many different reasons why someone may not ask for help or they may feel unable to leave. This can include not being believed or having little faith in the justice system, being ashamed of the violence and thinking that it was their fault, not having anywhere to go or money to assist, still loving the abusive partner despite their behaviour, having an insecure immigration status, or in the case of women with disabilities, they may worry about losing care packages or specially adapted homes. So what are the signs that might indicate that a patient is experiencing family violence? And how should health professionals respond? Asunta again. In emergency, for instance, you would ask somebody if you think that they're behaving in a way that indicates that something is, is happening or something is wrong. So often women can, might come in for abdominal pain. They might come in for headache. They might come in for an unrelated injury. But something in the presentation tells you that it's not right. She might seem scared. She might seem reluctant. Often women who are experiencing family domestic violence are poor historians of their own health. They don't remember things because they've been controlled. And you can imagine if you're living in crisis, you can't, you can't remember things. Um, you might be discharging someone home and they might say, oh, I can't afford the medication or I can't afford to come to the next appointment. And so it's asking those questions about, well, why can't, you know, what's going on? She might say, well, I don't have money for petrol. And then, you know, asking, you know, what's going on. And she might tell you that her partner controls the finances and he doesn't give her money for petrol to get to the appointment. So it's sort of those little things that give us indicators that something is wrong. Asunta explains that it's really important to choose the right moment to ask a patient a question. So COVID's been a situation that has sort of helped in a way, although it's a really terrible situation. But in a sense, because we had restrictions on who could come in, it's a perfect opportunity where patients are alone and you can ask them those questions. But what we recommend is that if you have suspicions, say, for instance, the partner is with the patient and they are answering all the questions or the patient looks at them before they answer or they're being used as an interpreter and you have a suspicion that, that something's wrong, a good idea is not to ask when the partner's there. So questions should always be asked when the patient is alone uh, with nobody present and not always assuming that the person who's perpetrating the violence is the partner because it could be the elder son in terms of elder abuse. It could be an in-law, it could be a brother, anyone. So always ensure that if you're going to ask the question that the patient is alone and that includes making sure there's no children around too because children can sometimes unintentionally repeat what they've heard in the presence of the other person and that could put that patient at risk. Asunta suggests starting with a framing question. 
I might say something like, you know, sometimes things can be hard at home and I'm going to ask you some questions about your relationship. We ask everybody these questions. They're just part of our assessment. Is that okay? And so then I would start with something like, you know, how are things at home? Is everything okay? Are you worried about something? Is someone making you feel scared or afraid? And that can start that conversation. It's really important to listen without judgment. This may be the first time that they have disclosed family violence. And your involvement at this point also doesn't mean that you need to take immediate steps to solve the situation. Just remember that this may be the first important step in a long journey towards them getting help. What's important to remember is that most women are safe to go home that day or whenever. Um, So women who, you know, may disclose have been living in family domestic violence often for a long time and they've been keeping themselves safe. So you don't always have to fix everything straight away. Just knowing that she's told you and you believe her and you know that she knows that there is support sometimes is enough and most women are okay to go home that day if it was really serious like the really high risk cases will usually come in with police and family violence support anyway and if a woman said to you I can't go home then we would ring um, safe steps for emergency accommodation But most people are okay to go home. Asunta says that if you ask or suspect family violence, it's really important to document your concerns or suspicions. The reason why it's important to document that you've asked and that family violence may be present is because sometimes that can paint a picture of what's going on and it can support her or the patient later if they needed to go to court and there was a request for information sharing. So sometimes we will have police ring us and ask for information about if a patient disclosed family violence and if they disclosed the perpetrator um, of the violence. And that can help her if she's going to court to get an intervention order. So it's really important that the notes are clear, that they're concise, that they're non-judgmental, so that it can support that story. To help us understand what it can be like for a victim survivor presenting to hospital, Beth shares with us her experience of attending an emergency department in Victoria. Her partner had thrown her down a flight of stairs after a rugby match. And we'd been at a rugby game and he threw me down the stairs of the Edhead Stadium before it finished on the way to the car park. And when I stood up, everything fell out. So, you know, I lost, I had a prolapse, but also my bladder, my bowel, everything Everything was sort of hanging. I didn't know that at the time. I just knew that something wasn't right and um, went home. I remember, I remember going home, sort of tucking it all back in. I remember getting to the emergency department the next morning and, um, and being – and just, you know, matter-of-factly, well, this has all come out. You know, you're, you, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to do that. You'll have to have this done. You'll have to have that done. You know, and I think it was when the intern said to me, you, you'll be lucky if you ever ride a bike again or something like that. And at that stage, bike riding was a really big part of my life. And that, that, was, that was the phrase that absolutely undid me, which is ridiculous to hang it on that. But that, I remember that being the sort of turning point for the tears. So, yeah, I did. I had to have quite a bit of reconstructive surgery and, you know, it took months. And even, even still, you know, when you've had your, your parts of your bowel reconstructed, it is difficulty forever. She disclosed the family violence to the treating team and the response she received wasn't helpful. 
the health professional suggested that she be referred for mental health support. I remember the intern saying, look, I can get a psychiatrist in here to talk to you. And I just clammed up because I just thought, I'm not the one with the mental illness. He is. He hurts the people he loves and then goes out into the world and pretends he's a good person. He's the one that has a mental illness. So I think having a gentle conversation, having a gentle opener about it is great. But then when somebody does say something, not going down that mental health route, for goodness sake, you know, like just being, listening, listening to the person and giving them information about, I guess, family violence services and, and um, you know, family violence practitioners around the place that can talk to, that can, you know, talk to them and help them work through it and help them come up with safety plans and things like that. Not diagnosing someone with depression or anxiety or all that that goes on the minute a woman opens her mouth about family violence. Beth has a final message for all healthcare professionals to do just one thing when they encounter a potential victim-survivor of family violence. Just think of the woman who's sitting in front of you as if she was your sister. You know, if she was your sister or your mother sitting there, how would you want them to be treated? How would you want a conversation to go? You know, and as I'm even saying that, I know most health professionals are women. So, you know, a third of the health professionals that are going to be having these conversations will be sitting in family violence relationships. And I know that's a very difficult place to be. But at the same time, one of the things that helped me was if I couldn't help myself, at least I could help other people get out of that sort of situation. Family violence really is a wicked problem and it can seem insurmountable. To address it, we are going to need political will, tackling gender inequality, prevention strategies, education programs, changes to the law and much, much more. But what we do know is that when health professionals can identify victim survivors, respond to them appropriately and refer them to services that can help, it can make a real difference to people who are experiencing family violence. Here's a final word from Asunta. It might be just if someone tells you they're experiencing family domestic violence, just to say, I believe you. And that could be the first time that that person has ever heard that they're not crazy, you know, that someone believes them. And that could make such a difference to them. And it's, it, it is baby steps, but it's one of the steps. And it does take a long time for the victim to leave a situation. So we, the evidence tells us that it can take up to seven times for a person to leave an abusive relationship and for all sorts of reasons. But we need to play a small part in that. And it's really important for staff to remember that as a hospital, we are not family violence specialists, but we have a role to play in identifying, responding and then referring to a specialist service. We can't manage that because... It takes specialist knowledge to manage someone who wants to either leave or or stay. Like, not everybody chooses to leave. Some women choose to stay. So our role is to really support that process, that person, that patient, into that next process, whatever that may be for them. As Rosie Batty reminded us at the start of this episode of If Only Someone Had Asked, anyone can experience family violence. However, we also know that some groups of women are at a greater risk. In the next episode, we'll hear from health professionals, victim survivors and advocates about the additional barriers that these groups may face when it comes to seeking and obtaining help. Thank you for listening today and a special thank you to Asunta and Beth for sharing their stories with us. Thank you also to our producer, Susanna Cornelius. To continue listening to If Only Someone Had Asked, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. 
I'm Lucy Vandenberg. I'll see you next time.